Let's go to Luke's diner. Are you ready? All right, we've spent the last three weeks sitting down at the tables that Luke invites us into in the Gospel of Luke. These are 10 tables that Jesus himself sat down at. And at each of these tables, we're learning things about our relationship with God and about our fellowship with other people. And so if you haven't been with us at all for this series, let me just give you a quick flyover of some of the tables that we've sat at in this series. A table of acceptance, a table of forgiveness, provision, fellowship, authenticity, honor. We sat down at a table for the hungry and a table of significance and a table of revelation. And today, I want to go all the way to the back of the restaurant. We want to go to the back of Luke's gospel, to the 10th table, and I want to speak to you for a few moments about a table of relatability. And before we even read the text, can I just say, this is what I love about the Christmas season. Christmas is all about the reality that we have a God who relates to us, right? I mean, that's, that's what the incarnation is. I mean, it's right there in the beginning of the, the, the Christmas story in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting Isaiah. He says, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what this season is about. It's about God coming near. I, I love the way John opens his gospel. In John chapter 1, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Can you think, just imagine that. We have seen, John says, his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Listen, the hope that's communicated in the Christmas season is that that God is relatable, that God is with us, that his dwelling is among us. Last week, we we ended in Luke 24 at this table of revelation, and and this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's already died on the cross. He was buried, and three days later, Easter Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. And, And the story we looked at last week was two men who were leaving Jerusalem. They had seen the crucifixion that weekend. They were distraught. They were in disbelief. They were walking a seven-mile stretch from Jerusalem down to Emmaus when none other than Jesus himself shows up. He's walking with him, but his, his identity is concealed. And they're walking with him. And they would later say, when he unpacked the scriptures, our hearts were burning within us. But they didn't know who he was until they got to Emmaus and Jesus was going to go a little farther. And then they said three words that changed everything. Maybe you remember the words. They said, stay with us. And on that invitation, Jesus not only walked with them and taught them the scriptures, but he came in their house, he sat at their table, and he broke the bread. And the Bible says in that moment, at the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened, and they had a revelation of who Jesus really is. And then in the next moment, Jesus vanished from their sight. Now that's where we left off last weekend, but can I tell you, those guys skipped dinner that night. Because it says after he broke the bread and disappeared, they immediately ran all the way back, seven miles, all the way back to Jerusalem. They hightailed it all the way back to the city. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Luke chapter 24, verse 33 says this. They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. 
There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Can you just imagine being in this room? I mean, of all the stuff that's happened this weekend and now they're all together and, and they're hearing these stories about this person seeing Jesus and this person seeing Jesus and these guys come barging in and they just saw Jesus. But before you get too, too excited about the moment of resurrection life, we got to look at Mark's commentary here quickly because Mark gives us a little bit of insight into what the, the, the pulse in the room actually was. In Mark chapter 16, verse 13, he gives us this insight. He says, these, talking of the two, these returned and they reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Here's the thing that's interesting about this table in this room. Everybody here has a Jesus story. This is not a congregation of, of lost people. This is a group of people who have seen God answer prayers. This is a group of people that have heard Jesus preach sermons that set the captive free and silenced the mouths of the most religious critics. This is a group of people that have seen the lame walk, blind eyes open, deaf ears hearing. These are people that have seen demons cast out and the dead raised to life again in their friend Lazarus. And yet, there's a, a feeling, a, a memory that, that is, is pervading over every other emotion and experience that they've had. It's the disappointment that they feel from what they saw this weekend. They saw him die. They saw him crucified. They saw him buried. And, and it's so easy for us to forget when we read the scripture so many years removed. But understand this. The Bible's very clear. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a surprise to God. The Bible says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it was always in the foreknowledge of God that Jesus would die for our sins. But it was never in the plan or the foreknowledge of the disciples. They, they, had, they had no indication. Well, they could have, but they missed the indication he gave them. And this was not on their radar. So here they are, they're in this room, and it could be a miraculous celebration, a testimony of, of God doing the impossible, but instead, it's a room filled with disappointed hopes, disappointed dreams, and it colors every conversation in the room. No matter who gives witness, they can't get over the reality of what they've seen. Peter saw him. And they're hearing Peter's testimony and they're going, yeah, but Peter says a lot. I mean, that guy, the women saw him. But they're, they're thinking, you know, I mean, the women were the last to leave on Friday. They were the first there before the sun rose this morning. They're tired. They're emotional. I don't know that we can really trust the, the women on this. And now these two guys come running in, looking like they just finished a half marathon. And, and, and they're looking at them and they're going, yeah, you know, it sounds, it sounds amazing, but, but they did not believe them either, Mark tells us. That's the table that's set. That's table 10, and Jesus shows up at this table. And, and I want you to see here that he, he gives them three incredible gifts at this table. He gives the gift of peace. 
He gives the gift of proximity and he gives the gift of an incredible promise. Look at it with me in verse 36. The next verse says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Now, and I love that. I mean, only Jesus. I, I was thinking like, what would I say? I mean, if, if, if I'm Jesus, this story looks different this morning, I can promise you. Because, I mean, there's so many things he could have said. Like, he had told them over and over again, like, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man must be turned over to sinners. He will be arrested. He will be crucified. He will die. And three days later, he will rise. And he told them over and over again, this has to happen. And then what do they do? They, they forsake him. They deny that they even know him. They all run out of the garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested. I mean, they had one instruction. After I rise, meet me in Galilee. But they're not in Galilee. They're still in Jerusalem. They're hiding in a room behind a locked door. And Jesus could have showed up in that room and said, you knuckleheads. Like, you numbskull, thick-headed what am I going to do with you? You know, I mean, like how many things could he have said in this moment besides this? But Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. And, and what I love is when you zoom out and you look at the whole narrative of Luke's gospel, what he's actually doing is he's bookending the entire life of Jesus on the earth with a proclamation of peace. Like when you go all the way back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2 and he tells us there were shepherds out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And suddenly, there's this heavenly host of angels that appear. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And God's voice penetrates through the angels. And by the way, this was not a time of peace. This was a time of hostility. This was a time of darkness and, and discord and, and, and the people of God were under oppression and, and the angels say, peace. And it's not world peace. A lot of people are looking for that and they're confused because they say, hey, the Bible says that, you know, glory to God in the highest. I got this Christmas card from somebody. It said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But look what's happening in, in the Gaza Strip and look what's happening in, in the Ukraine. And they don't finish the thought. He didn't come to give external peace. He came to give internal peace. And he came to give eternal peace. And, and the angels said, glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. There's, there's a proclamation of peace that can be on those who walk with God. And then you get to this story and the end of Luke's gospel. And again, Jesus shows up with resurrection power in verse 36. And he says, peace be with you. But when he said it, not a time of peace. I mean, these guys weren't all congregated because they had a reservation. You know, this wasn't Applebee's. They're locked in a room. They're hiding because the same people that wanted Jesus dead and succeeded at killing him are now looking for them. In fact, they had already paid off the Roman guards to say Jesus' body was stolen while we were sleeping on the job. 
And so word is getting back to the governor if it hasn't already. And the other shoe's about to drop and they are fearful and afraid. In fact, John 20 and verse 19 tells us that. It says, they were terrified and hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. So that's the atmosphere in the room. That, that's the vibe at the table when Jesus says peace. But again, it's not external peace. It's not, it's not I'm not going to abolish the, the Roman Empire tonight. What he's saying to them is, I'm offering peace with you. Internal peace and eternal peace can be yours in my presence. Jesus, he knows what you need. This is a relatable Savior. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows what you need? I mean, I, I don't know how Christmas shopping's going for some of you, but I have some family members, I just don't know what they need. They're hard to shop for every, every year. I, I just don't know what to get them. Think about this. Jesus has never had that problem. He knows exactly what you need. And he shows up in the midst of all of their broken dreams and disappointments and frustrations and questions and he says, peace. Look at the next verse. Verse 37 says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Well, that's just par for the course, right? I mean, they didn't believe Peter when he said he saw Jesus. They didn't believe the women when they came back and said, we saw Jesus. They didn't believe those two guys that just came running in and said, we saw Jesus. So why would they believe their own eyes? Like, this must be a ghost. But Jesus doesn't just come in offering peace. He offers another gift, and that's proximity. And I love what we see in this moment. Look at the next verse. Verse 38 says, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Now, now that's a good question. And honestly, I think a lot of Christians today would ask that same question. If we saw somebody that, that, that maybe was a skeptic or maybe they, they weren't following the Lord completely. Maybe we would say, why are you troubled? And why do you have doubts rise in your minds? But, but so often our tendency is to ask the question from a position of spiritual superiority. You know, we kind of look down at people and, and ask it in a condescending way. Like, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? But here's what I love about Jesus. Oh, God, that we could be more like this. He asked the question, and then he steps toward them. Look at verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Can I just say, today, if you're here today and you're, you're troubled, you say, I've got doubts in my mind. See the invitation at table number 10. Jesus does not push you off and say, oh, oh, oh ye of little faith, what's wrong with you? No, Jesus says, come closer. Touch me. See. I, he offers the gift of proximity to come near to know him, 
And here's the problem. Like the disciples, they did know him, but they only could relate to Jesus, the son of man. They had lived with him for three and a half years. I mean, they, they, they ate meals with him. They slept in some of the same places. I don't know if Jesus snored, but they knew. He had B.O. when it was a hot day. I mean, like, he's, they have no problem knowing and relating to the son of Mary. What they couldn't relate to is the son of God. And here's what you have to know. Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% humanity. He came in the flesh. He lived a life as a man. He is 100% man, but he is also 100% deity. Colossians says he is the fullness of God in bodily form. When he gave his name, when he gave us and them authority in his name, when he said, I'm gonna put my spirit in you, it wasn't just a, a, a human Spirit. It wasn't just a son of man spirit so that you could, you know, live a good Christian life and love your neighbor and, and, and go to church and resist temptation. It's all those things, but it's also a supernatural spirit of the most high God. It's a spirit that has power over death, hell, and the grave. He says, I, I want to relate to you. I want you to relate to me and to my spirit and my presence. Then he does something incredible. He gives him a beautiful promise. Look at the next verse. Verse 41 says, and while they still did not believe. <laughs> like, really, guys? Because of joy and amazement. So now they're excited. They're just, they're just doubtful excited. You ever been there? Like, this is so crazy. I don't, like, like, I don't know what I believe. It's joy and amazement, but it's also disbelief. This is wild. I don't know what I think. He said to them, do you have anything to eat? Now, this is just amazing to me. Um, of all the things that Jesus could have done, I mean, he, he's standing there. He's the resurrection and the life. He showed them the nail prints in his hands and in his side, and, and, and they're still, they're not really sure of all things he could do to say, I want to relate to you. He goes to the table. Of all the things Jesus could do, he says, let's fellowship together. Let's break bread. Let's have a meal. I want you to know I am who I say I am. Do you have anything to eat? George Simmel was a German sociologist and philosopher, and he offers that eating bonds people together in a physical and a social sense because all humans share the need to eat and drink. The physiological sharing of food at the meal, he argues, is the basis upon which social and cultural sharing is built. And thus, eating and drinking together can transform social relationships. Now, we've all experientially know that to be true. We've all sat and connected with people around the table before and formed a bond over a meal. But how much more significant is it that the God of the universe, that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ would come to a table for no other reason except to say, I wanna have a bond with you. I want to relate to you. And, and of course, it's no surprise 
because of how much attention Luke gives to meals in his gospel. He's the only gospel writer that actually tells us what was on the menu. Look at the next verse. Verse 42, it says, They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, some of the older translations actually have a little more on the menu than that. It says, so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. Not like that, because this verse tells me something about the promise of our future. It tells me that in our glorified bodies, we're going to enjoy food. And that translation tells me we're going to enjoy sweets too. So I really like this translation. You know, Psalm 78 calls manna the grain of heaven and the bread of angels. In other words, it communicates that the food they experienced was supernatural. It was heavenly. And here's the reality. The disciples had eaten hundreds of meals with Jesus. They had already identified with him at the table. Even as recent as three days before, at the Last Supper, they broke bread with him. What they couldn't relate to was Jesus, the Son of God. Every other meal we've looked at in Luke's gospel has been about Jesus saying, I can relate to you. He's, he's God with us. He has made his dwelling among us. Jesus comes to those tables to say to the religious and the, the most lost, I can relate to you. But this table, he comes to to say, you can relate to me. They, they had no problem understanding Jesus, son of man. But, but when they're looking at the resurrected, glorified Jesus who, who just walked through the wall and came into a room where the doors are locked, the one who just rose from the dead after they saw him brutally crucified three days ago, Jesus comes to this table to say, you can relate to me. Paul would later write it like this in Romans 8, 11, The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's what they couldn't fathom. The same power that raised him from the dead dwells in you. And here's what I love about the promise at this table. He gives us a glimpse into what our future resurrected life will be. Uh, Diane, I'm so glad you're here this morning. This has been a difficult weekend for her. Yesterday, uh, we made the trip up to Honeybrook, Pennsylvania together, and I, I did the funeral service for her son. Tragic loss, 33 years old. And I'm gonna tell you, that was a room with a lot of questions about eternity in it. And now any funeral... I do, I, I find that to be the case. When you're faced with the reality of our own mortality, and you look at a loved one and they're, they're gone. They used to be here, now they're gone. Lots of questions start to circle in our minds about the future. And I wanna just encourage you, if, if you have questions about eternity, if you have questions about resurrection life, and you, you, I, don't, I don't know what that looks like, I don't know what it's gonna be like, look at Jesus, go to table 10. Because you find out some things in the resurrection. Number one, we see that, hey, we're going to enjoy good food and sweets. Like We're going to enjoy friendship. We're going to take long walks. Like he walked with those men on the Emmaus Road earlier that day. We see that Jesus still bore scars in his hands. But he didn't have any of the pain and suffering that he had experienced just three days before. That tells us that, that in, in 
our resurrected bodies, we're still going to have testimonies, but the test will be over. He tells us when we look at Jesus that he enjoyed a physical existence. He stepped into the room and said, like, come, touch me, see. I, I think too many of us have, have, have adopted some view of heaven that we got from Hollywood. And it's no wonder that the people of God are not excited about spending an eternity in heaven. Because we have some false assumption that heaven is just going to be this ambient white space. We're going to float around on clouds in, in itchy silk robes. And we're going to strum golden harps. And I don't even play a harp, but I guess I will then. And it's just going to be this endless worship service. And nobody ever says, you may be seated. Right? And then we go, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I mean, I kind of want to walk my girls down the aisle first, but yeah, I want to go to heaven. I mean, I, I hope to have kids first. I mean, yeah, I, I want to go to heaven. I mean, I hope I get to, you know, spend some of my retirement before, and heaven's just not that heavenly. And if we're honest, we go, man, I don't know that I'm living and longing for the resurrection life that Jesus promised because we've gotten some convoluted misrepresentation of what he died to purchase for us. But when we look at the promise of Jesus, we see a body, a physical body that can enjoy and embrace and a touch and a good meal and fellowship and friendship and long walks. And yet he's not limited by the time and space as we are. He can break the bread in Emmaus and disappear. He can show up behind locked doors in Jerusalem. A lot of people wonder, like, what, what about what happens when Christians die? I mean, where's my loved one? I mean, the preacher said that they're with Jesus, but I know they're, they're, on, they're in the urn on the mantle. They're, you know, we put, them in that, we put them in that vase. They're not, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That means the moment you breathe your last breath in this life, the next moment you inhale the glorious atmosphere of God's presence. That's the hope that we have, that we are in God's presence. And a lot of times we think, well, well what, ha what happens to our bodies? If we're in God's presence, how, how can we be in heaven if our body's in, in an urn? And we forget that we are not physical people having a spiritual experience on Sunday morning in church. We are spirit beings known in the foreknowledge of God that are having a physical experience. You have a soul that will live forever. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That doesn't mean you're, you're pumping valve. It means in, in the seat and seat of who you are. There is eternity there. And when God made you in his image, he did not create you to die. That's part of the curse. That's part of the fall. That was part of the judgment of God. And so when Jesus came to bring salvation and a restoration of all things, he meant all things. And so the full salvation of the church is not just to save your soul. One day, he's going to restore and save the body that God intended to live forever. That's why the Bible says that in, in 1 Thessalonians, that when Christ comes again, 
the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive and remain, and I hope that's us, will be caught up to meet him in the air. And so we shall forever be with the Lord. The Bible communicates there's gonna be an incredible reunion that happens. A reunion of, of you with all your loved ones that died holding on to hope. I was just talking with Jamie before the service. and so incredible to see you guys sitting together in church. The last time they sat together in church, it was when I did their mom's funeral. There's gonna be a reunion. Part of that reunion is we're gonna be together. Connie's gonna be there. The other part of that reunion for those that died in Christ, there's gonna be a reunion with their bodies. You say, what are those bodies gonna be like? Look at Jesus. It's gonna be physical, it's gonna be recognizable, it's gonna be able to touch and express emotion and enjoy long walks and eat good food. Jesus gives us an incredible promise that not only can I relate to you, but you can relate to me. The life that I have, the life I'm living in front of you while we eat this broiled fish and honeycomb is the life I just purchased for you. An eternal life that is full of joy. He said, I want to give you peace and I want to give you proximity and I want to give you a promise. And I want to end this service today by just taking a moment, giving you a moment to just come to his table, come to a place of fellowship. You know, it's amazing. I, I've heard people so many times say, you know, I, I tried Jesus. I tried Jesus. And it's amazing when they say that, they mean like, I, I gave him one hour on Sunday morning. I tried him. Like they spent 30 years trying living for themselves. You know, they spent 30 years trying living for the world. Now, well, I tried Jesus. Well, let me tell you, friends, you can't try Jesus. He's not an appetizer. You have to surrender to him. You have, to, you have to lay down your life and say, I, I, I submit, I surrender my life to you. And he invites you to come. He doesn't, he doesn't push you away for your doubt and your skepticism. He says, come and see, touch me. Come be with me. Sit at the table with me, get to know me. I want to invite you to stand all over this room. If you're able, would you just stand to honor the presence of the Lord? Our, our prayer team is going to begin to, to come to the altar now. And, and I hope in a moment you'll follow them. I hope you'll meet us in a moment at the altar. Because I just want to take just a few minutes right here at the end of this service. I just want to take a few minutes to, to just move towards his heart. Earlier this summer, actually, I heard a conversation uh, with Martha Tennyson. Some of you might know who Martha Tennyson is. She is an Assembly of God evangelist. She's 81 years young. And I want to promise you, she's got more energy than anybody in this room. I mean, amazing woman of God. Preaches with fire. But I heard a conversation with her earlier this summer. And she said these words. She said, we only trust people we know. 
and we only know people that we fellowship with. And then she said this, the more fellowship I have with God, the more I trust him. Now that's simple, but so profound. We only trust people we know and we only know people we fellowship with. So many of us, we say, I'm struggling to trust God, but you don't fellowship with God. And he invites us to the table, not just in this moment, but in every moment. He's calling. He's offering his peace. He's offering proximity. He's offering you his promises. So I just ask this worship team to come and just begin to worship the Lord. God, we thank you for your presence in this place today. I pray that this season as we approach Christmas, this would be a season of drawing near to you. As we celebrate a God who dwells among us, may we not stay distant, but I pray this would be a season that we fellowship with you, that we learn to trust you, that we know you more day by day. In Jesus' name, I want to just, I want to leave you with a final thought here as as people are continuing to pray, that's fine, stay where you are, but uh, Luke mentions 10 tables that Jesus sat at, and we've studied all of those in this four-week series, but uh, there's actually many more meals in Luke's gospel. We could have gone on into the new year. But I just want to I want to remind you of one. It's kind of a, a table within a table. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was at a table with a Pharisee. And we, we looked at that story. But while he was at the table, he told a story about another meal. And when Jesus started talking about heaven, here's what Luke tells us in Luke 14. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I hope, I hope that you live with that excitement about the reality that we will break bread with Jesus in his kingdom. We ought to live with that excitement. But in this moment, Jesus actually kind of brings his feet back down to the earth for a moment. In verse 16, it says, Jesus replied with a story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Jesus goes on in this story to say that when they went out to tell him, everybody had excuses. I'm, I'm not ready. I, I got stuff to do. I, I got places to go. I, I, I can't come to the banquet. And when the servants came back and told that to the master, the master of the banquet said, then I want you to go out quickly. I want you to go down the streets and the alleys and bring the poor, bring the crippled, bring the blind, bring the lame. I want you to bring them all. And when he said that to him, verse 22 says, Sir, the servant replied, 
What you've ordered has been done. But there's still more room. And when I read that verse again this week, two thoughts just came to my mind. Number one, can we say to our master, sir, what you have ordered has been done. Has it been done? Have we done our part? Have we gone to the streets, the alleys? Have we invited others to come in? You've heard us talk a lot about our Christmas Eve service. You'll hear it again next week, but let me just say that this is an opportunity for us as a people of God to bring people on, on the most, on, on the day that the gospel is more palatable than on any other day in the, in the calendar. I mean, there's nothing more welcoming and inviting than a cuddly little baby, you know, just even people that don't worship Jesus, they still sing the songs about him coming when they shop in the malls. All the secular radio stations are playing the songs about Jesus right now. There's never going to be an easier time in America to invite people to church than Christmas. So I wonder, can we say, sir, what you've ordered has been done? I hope we can. But we can also say the next part. There's still room. There's still room. Like, I got to tell you, I love Christmas Eve at Wrightsville Assembly of God. I mean, I, I love I love. The last two years, we've had four services here on Christmas Eve to accommodate everybody. But I love it. I mean, the, this, this wood ceiling is all lit up with the glow of candles. And I like the real candles. And, and I'm a preacher, so I love a packed house. And so, you know, this works for me. Like it's, it's packed and it's awesome. But we're forgoing all of that this Christmas Eve. We're, it, it falls on a Sunday this year. So we're not having... Sunday morning services. We're not meeting at 8.30 and 10. We're not having the 11.30 service on Sunday, December 24th. We're, we're sacrificing our preferences to make more room for more people to come. We're going to be at the Performing Arts Center at Eastern York High School at 2 in the afternoon and at 4 in the afternoon. And the reason we're doing it then is because that's when most lost people come. We found that to be true over the last several years. So we've got some more of these cards. The ushers will hand them to you on the way out if you'll take one. And I want to challenge you. There's still room. And if there's not room here, we'll make room up there. Invite someone. Invite those that maybe would get overlooked. Invite those that you've invited before and they've turned you down for the last five Christmases. Invite them again. Because there's still room. And after the servant said that, Jesus replied with these words. He said, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Jesus has room at his table, but he doesn't want any empty seats. He said, I want my house full. I want it full. God, I thank you today for your word. Thank you for the invitation that you've given to us. 
Thank you for the, the message of Christmas that communicates that not only can you relate to us, God with us, but Lord, we can relate to you. Thank you that you came to the table in your glorified, resurrected state. And I pray that every one of us today would grab a hold of the peace that is available despite our emotions or our experiences. Peace be with you. God, thank you for the gift of proximity today. May we draw nearer to you and thank you for your great and precious promises. Lord, we cling to them. Lord, even today with, with Diane, I cling today to the promises of resurrection life. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, in all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, if you love the Lord and his word, let's just give him praise again. Amen.